Hello, everyone. This is Jared Director, President of Columbia Omnicorp and Columbia Omni Studio. Welcome to Columbia Omni Live. This is where we will bring you the latest insider look into the fashion and color industry while we all reimagine this new world we live in. Enjoy this episode and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with future episodes. Also, give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to see what creative projects we are helping our customers with. Thank you very much and stay safe. Okay. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us uh, for another installment of our Columbia Omni uh, interview series. Uh, today, we have uh, Bruce Wright of X-Wright. Uh, <laughs> Bruce is uh, one, of the, um, one of the real gentlemen of our business, and um, he's got a very interesting uh, story to tell about TAC. What is TAC? Total Appearance Capture. Um, it is basically telling what is the appearance of a material, not just the color. I think we get a little caught up in color um, and thinking that's the end-all, be-all uh, because that's our business and that's what we look at and that's what we, that's what we do. Uh, but it doesn't take into account other facets like gloss, translucency, transparency, um, those kind of things, the texture of the of the material and this could be for um apparel fabric it could be for all sorts of different things uh all sorts of different products it's it could be coffee pots or um or 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 uh, ceramics or or soft hard home goods um so it could be for all sorts of stuff and not just for uh, apparel, textiles, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, without further ado, I thought this would be really interesting for everybody. And um, without further ado, we bring on uh, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Well, hi, Mitch. Thanks very much. Um, you did a great job explaining what total appearance capture is. I almost feel like I can go home now because you've done it all. But no, just, uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Just comes naturally. You're doing a fine job. Um, you're right. We, you know... <laughs> You and I know each other through through Pantone, and um, I'm with X-Rite Pantone. Um, Pantone has been the division that's been all in all about color, and X-Rite's been all about measurement. And the beautiful thing is, is that the two of them came together about a decade ago, and now we have the opportunity to measure and then express appearance of a material, and that's what our total appearance capture system is designed to do. Yeah. So uh, usually we get these uh, talks started where I ask about your career path. And I think in your case, it'd be very interesting because you didn't start off with this. This was just, you know, a, a recent invention. So um, how did you start in this business and how did you end up here? Great question. Um, a long time ago, um, I entered the print world. Um, it was still analog at that time. There was no no desktop publishing. Um, people were still doing things by setting type. I was very lucky in my first real job uh, out of university because I knew nothing about the industry and that was exactly the reason the company that I got started with hired me. They were looking for a blank sheet of paper to write on. <laughs> and I, I filled that. I filled that requirement. And what happened is... Tabula Rasa. Yeah, Tabula Rasa. So what, what I found is that I quite liked the people that I met and I enjoyed the I enjoyed the creative process involved in print. So it was an industry that I decided I'd stay in. Um, I 
particularly became interested in how to make a manual process more automated, which led to digital printing. And the interesting thing for me now is that talking to people about appearance capture in 2019 and 2020 is remarkably similar to talking to people about digital color printing in 1985. Uh, the technology is different, but the concepts and the obstacles for people to adopt it are pretty similar. It's like um, there's no new technology. It gets reworked in uh, different ways. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are no new stories under the sun. Um, everything's a variation on something that came before. Um, this is quite a variation. I mean, what, so when you were at X-Rite, you were in printing? You were... I came, I came to X-Rite 14 years ago as a technical specialist. Um, so my job was to ask questions and then listen for answers and then see if I could untangle what was happening for the, for the customer. Um, and it was really a good training ground for what I'm doing today in terms of trying to sell appearance capture because you have to ask what people want to do and then try to understand the answers. And that has been a really good, uh, a really good experience for me. I, I don't understand and pretend to know every industry that wants to use appearance capture. But the people who I come in contact with are usually pretty, pretty open and pretty good about telling me the things that are important to them, and then I can try and bring to them the benefits that I think make sense. Yeah. But it's been an interesting... I've been doing the, the sales role with X-Ray for the past uh, two, almost three years. But uh, the technical support aspect, I think that was probably much more important to me than I originally realized it would be. All right. Do you like sales? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, <no>. next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it a lot. Um, no question. It is a different world, no question. But I think sure. being able to have the technical background makes selling a lot easier than if you were just a pure sales animal. No disrespect meant to okay. So, none taken. Um, so, with... Uh, with this uh, presentation uh, for the audience, I just want them to know that we usually don't do PowerPoints, but the, the, the tax system is, is so um, different than what we work with. It it's, has um, a lot of very integral parts, and um, I thought it would be good if, if Bruce showed a little bit of a, of a uh, PowerPoint. Right. Uh, sorry for you guys who don't like PowerPoints, but we'll make it quick. I and, will, uh, we'll make it brief and hopefully painless. Yeah. And it'll be interesting. I think uh, for those who haven't seen it before, it's an eye opener. So uh, thank you. So and share. And hopefully you're seeing a screen right now. I am, and I see it. It's good. Excellent. Very good. So appearance is the combination, as Mitch has said, of color, texture, gloss, transparency, and translucency. So we can have a Pantone number, but all the other aspects of texture, gloss, et cetera, go into making the appearance of a, of a material in an object. So when we're doing the measurement, we're trying to capture accurate color, define those colors spectrally, measure gloss, and being able to measure multiple materials. The system was originally designed to capture all the materials that be used in automobile or transportation. So the file format that we have is called AXF, or Appearance Exchange Format. 
And it's a digital twin of a physical material. We can also incorporate all the text information or the metadata into the digital file. So this is a pretty standard example of someone says, well, I do all this with photography. You certainly can. But if you change any of the variables, position, lighting, shape of the object, then the photograph can't keep up. In this case, the left-hand side is rendered. The right-hand side is a, a professionally taken photograph. And if we're doing our job properly, they should be almost, indistingu almost indistinguishable. This would be an example of an application in footwear where the shoe is a digital design and the materials are scanned with the TAC system. The TAC technology, we've got a scanner. It's approximately six feet tall, weighs about 500 pounds, so I don't have one here in my, in my home office. Pantora software that uh, captures the materials and turns them into a digital file. And then for verification, we have what's called a virtual light booth, which is a, one of our conventional spectral light, light booths, but with the back panel being a high-intensity LCD screen. So it's a rendered object in the background, and then the physical in the foreground in a light box managed lighting configuration. These are the materials that we're particularly good at, things that have a mesh or a, a multi-layer to them, things that have a height structure, really, really good at leathers, suede, things that have texture. Plastics up to and including translucency, which is very difficult to capture and render properly. And metals up to, but not quite a true mirror. Fluorescence we're working on, hopefully by later this year, we will capture and uh, conquer that particular challenge. For people who want to view the materials, we have free viewer software available from the xray.com website. And when people are doing 3D design, there's all sorts of different programs they could use depending upon the industry that they're in. This is, uh, uh, as of today, the current support that we have amongst many different rendering programs. So whether you're designing an ocean liner or whether you're making a moccasin, um, there's rendering software that's designed to work properly for those industries. We have our AXF pro, uh, file format supported across those different programs. We have our own scanning lab, and we offer this as a service in addition to selling the systems outright. This would be an example of me in our TAC lab. We've got two TAC7 scanners, and then over in the right-hand side is a virtual light booth. And the virtual light booth, as you can see, has a rendered version of the coffee maker in the background and a physical one that we can compare and make sure that the scanned and rendered version of the material matches up accurately to the real-life material. And then, of course, we have color management for photographic capture as well. We also do capture of the materials, so we can also verify the material against a, a well-taken photograph. I'll be happy to give a PDF of that to anyone who would like, but let's kill the PowerPoint and come back to our conversation. Okay. No, great. Uh, I mean, I think that's fascinating, and it just brings up a, a ton of questions um, that I have about it. I, I don't fully understand it, <laughs> but um, what? <laughs> that's a good place to start. What? Um, just to backtrack a little bit, what's the difference between transparency and translucency? Well, transparency would be like a mesh fabric where there's an area that there is no material. And when you scan it, you want to make sure that we capture the area of material, but also the void area, the area where you can see straight through. Translucency would be something that you can partially see through. And, and one example of something that has translucency that most people may or may not recognize they have are eyeglasses. And eyeglass frames, in many cases, are a, a multi-layered color because there's translucency. The light gets part of the way through the plastic 
and then there's a different color in the middle, and it may be that the light doesn't pass all the way through or doesn't pass through evenly. Translucency from a computational standpoint and from a rendering standpoint is a much harder thing to do than just capturing whether there's material there or no material. Transparency is pretty simple by comparison. It's surprising the number of products that have translucent properties to them, though. We don't necessarily think about it, but mm -hmm. do. Yeah, interesting. So um, I'm a textile designer. Mm -hmm. um, how, what does this do for me? What do, how do I use it, and, and what do I use it for? Well, if you're a textile designer, in a perfect world, you'd like to be able to do all sorts of what-ifing before you finally set up a, te a test loom or some sort of initial configuration of a material to see what it's going to look like. So for companies that are using textile design software, they will likely go through many variations and iterations of a design of a material before they finally turn it into a real, a real material. If I'm trying to then make a product with that material from that textile mill or that, that fabric producer, then if I can have a digital version of that material, I can do the same thing. I can do a lot of experimentation with design to see which materials are going to work really well without actually waiting for physical samples or fabricating up test, uh, test materials to see what they're going to look like. So it, really the value here is to try to give somebody the ability to do a lot of what-ifing. What if it was this? What if it was that shape? What if we had a material that had a different visual property to it? We want to keep some features of it, but we want to change some others. These are things that in the digital world you can do, I would say, really easily, but you can do a lot more easily than trying to simulate it by making up new material. Yeah. And, if and you, therefore, reducing the product development time. What we're really trying to do is we're trying to cut time out of the cycle. Um, a lot of companies will be involved with doing designs across continents. They might have design teams in Europe and in North America. Materials might be coming from Italy. They might be coming from Vietnam or China. If we can have these materials in digital form, then being able to use these materials, I won't say instantly, but very quickly, becomes a reality. Today, even if you're using FedEx, you know, you're still dealing with every time, some, every time something has to come from somewhere else, it's a day to two days not to mention the cost. So in a perfect world, what would happen is that material manufacturers would start generating digital files of their materials so that designers have instant access to the, to the virtual material. And then once they decide which materials they really want to see a physical one of, they can request physical samples. That's the model that we see happening in other mm -hmm. industries. And I'm hoping it's going to come to both clothing, performance wear, and footwear. It's getting there, but we're not there yet. Right. So um, I tell my mill, I have a design, I've worked on it, here's, you know, here's a rendering. Does mm -hmm. it also come with the specifications for that fabric, or that has to be worked on after they view the, the rendering? You mean by the specifications, you mean the physical properties? Like of what, what fiber? Yeah, what, what fiber was it? You know, what size yarn? You know, how many uh, stitches per inch or whatever? All, all that information can be recorded and incorporated into the appearance exchange format or AXF file. So that's what we would call metadata. So if I was to send you a physical example of a material today, I would send you a swatch of material and I'd likely send you 
an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document that would have all the text information that you wanted to know. Um, what's the width of the material? What's the weight of the material? Where is it coming from? How many, how many meters or how many yards constitutes a minimum order? All that information is very, very tiny from a digital standpoint, and that can be incorporated into the digital file. So whoever's designing with that material could have access to all that information that would then get populated into their PLM or product lifecycle management software. And, and many companies are using so that was, it today. That is a, a question I was going to ask is how does it integrate with a PLM or even a CAD system? How does that, how do they work together? Well, um, the, the, the two different categories of software, CAD or computer-assisted design, yes. that's, that's really designed for designing the product, having the object, and then wrapping the materials or mapping the materials onto it. Some of CAD systems will get very, very uh, advanced. Um, if you were designing an airliner or an automobile, then the design software and the PLM software really are integrated into one, one program. If I'm in the world of clothing design or footwear design, then those likely are two separate things, although there are some programs um, in footwear. Roman's head would be an example of a program that people do their footwear design in and also has a full-featured PLM as part and parcel of it. Other people might choose to design with software like Modo or Keyshot, where it's great for design and great for rendering, but it's really not designed to be a replacement for a PLM system. Um, some companies have made the investment in a PLM system long before they ever go to digital design. That way they can build a bill, of, a bomb or a, a bill of materials for whatever they're making and have that information in an organized fashion. Uh, again, Excel is a wonderful thing, but it gets used as, a, as a, a blunt instrument too often to try to record all the materials that are involved. True. It's true. Hardly use word perfect anymore. Just put it in Excel. Yeah, you know? I word so, um, I liked it, but I remember it. <laughs> this has... Ha, ha, I, I'm getting stuttering because I have a lot of questions. Um, I, I read, you know, about this this week and, and just um, trying to just bone up a little bit on it. But um, the materials library does that does it come like preloaded with a library of materials, or is that something that they have to, um, you know, load themselves? That's, customer that, load that's themselves. something that that a customer would load themselves, and that's usually industry specific. Um, if we take the original group of companies who purchased tax systems, they were automotive manufacturers. So all of their libraries and materials are for internal use only. Audi and Volkswagen aren't really interested in making their material library available to Mercedes and Fiat Chrysler. So that they, they keep those to themselves. Material manufacturers, um, a company like uh, Brutex, they have the ability to scan their materials and when they choose to, they can make those libraries available to the world. Now, it's very much an industry-by-industry industry thing. If I'm a powder coating manufacturer, then I might want to make my materials available to companies who want to use my materials but limit the access. Other companies who aren't industry-specific, if I was someone who was making, um, if I was making a, a silk material, a range of silk materials, I may want to have those digital materials available to any anyone who'd like access to them. And there are, some, there are some venues now that are starting to 
make those available. Material exchange would be one such situation where companies are actively putting their materials up on that, that marketplace so people can research and source out their materials much more effectively than having a room full of physical samples that they have to go dig through. So explain to me, and I, I, I missed this part, is that you're basically using like a 3D um, imaging software or to capture that image, and you're what, importing it into the TAC? Um, how does that work? And wouldn't there be different qualities of, of there, there's 3D images? Yeah, and, and everything in, in the world of 3D design is thought of in terms of objects. So you can have an object, whether it's a sphere, whether it's a shoe, whether it's a skyscraper. That object is created in 3D design software. And then materials that we scan with our system get turned into skins that can be put on various parts of that, that object. So we aren't, we aren't bringing in the 3D object. We're taking our materials out to be put onto the 3D object. And that's usually done in software. If I'm designing a car, then I might be using Delta Gen from Dassault. I could be using Autodesk software. If I'm designing footwear, I might be using Romans CAD or Shoemaster. The materials that are scanned with TAC or total appearance capture, think of them as skins that can be applied to the object. Now, some 3D objects are designed and created in software. Other objects are scanned by using handheld or an array of capture systems where they can capture a 3D, a 3D body or object. A motion capture in television and movies is like that, where they'll have a system of cameras that will capture the material, capture the 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 actor in this case, and then turn them into an uh, turn them into an object, and then that object can have different clothing or materials mapped onto them. Probably, you know, one of the earliest examples would be in Terminator, where you had someone who was made of liquid metal. Again, they had to they had to scan after, and then the materials would have been scanned in a similar situation to what we're doing with Total Grand's capture, and then applied in in rendering software. So you see a lot of this kind of technology probably used in, movie, in, in movies, right? Movies. movies drive an awful lot of this. I know that uh, many of the companies that are involved in um, product design and, and rendering software for product design also have deep roots in, um, in motion pictures and television and video games. Video games are a huge driver for, yes. for, for business these days, particularly for companies that want to do online product configurators. Because we have no patience when we're on the internet. We want everything to happen immediately. And we're dealing with digital files right. that can be quite large. But game software and gaming platforms sure. like Unreal Engine and Unity are excellent at making things happen very, very quickly online. So if I'm trying to do a product configurator for a line of shirts or suits or bicycles, I might design in a rendering software, but then take it into the gaming engine to then turn it into something that will move quickly on my website. It's all about being able to yeah. transfer the materials effectively and not lose, not lose quality in the transition. And that's something that these gaming engines have become quite adept at. The 
difference between reality and, and yeah. the gaming world is getting increasingly hard to distinguish between. I'm not a well, my game well, choice, but my, my children certainly tell me chapter and verse when someone's done a great job in, in the rendering fact, in the rendering of it. Yeah, my 12-year-old son would um, probably say there's no difference between virtual and uh, a reality. So um, he's knee-deep into Fortnite. Um, and Fortnite is the main money spinner for Epic Games, which is behind, yeah. which is the company behind um, one of the two leading gaming engines. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how the the scanner? I, I saw all the cameras around it, you know, internally, but all the cameras around it. And does that does it also take like a spectrophotonic reading of the color? Yes, we're measuring. We're measuring. Does this? So inside the tax scanner, which we don't have, unfortunately, it can't be transparent so you can see inside, but inside the tax seven, you would have four high, high quality uh, black and white cameras. You would have multiple spectrophotometers inside 32 different light sources, and we rotate the material 360 degrees. So for each combination of camera, camera angle, lighting angle, and rotational position, we're taking multiple pictures. So to capture, let's say, something like a silk, which is a material that will change its appearance depending upon the angle you view it at or the angle of light that hits it, we might capture over 10,000 separate images and over 100 gigabytes of information to build the digital file for one material. Now, you can't use a file that large, so the Pantora software does the job of turning that into a usable file. So what was a gigabyte? gets turned into a megabyte. So now you've got a material that might be 80 to 100 megabytes in size. Now that becomes a realistic material that you could use in a design software without bringing your computer to a complete crawl. Now people are using very powerful computers for this, but even still, we have to make sure that the materials don't bog the system down because people are, are making renderings with multiple materials on objects. So we're I think of music, I'm a lot of that. I'm a I think of music when you're talking about, you know, um, slimming those files down. And I'm wondering, does it lose integrity when that happens, when you bring a gig down to a megabyte? It's a great, it's a great question. And it was one that, that certainly occurred to me when I started uh, working with the tax system. And what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with fitting algorithms. It's not like a lossy compression. Um, one of the things that I particularly like to do when I'm not working with tax is I'm a big fan of vinyl. So a vinyl album is probably one of the best methods of reproduction of sound. Now, people have grown very, very accustomed to MP3s, and those are great in that you can have thousands of them on a very small storage device, but because of the compression that's involved, you lose a lot of quality. I'm happy to say that when we create the AXF file by doing the fitting algorithms, we're not throwing away data, we're just finding a way to encode it so it doesn't take up the same amount of space. To do that takes time, unfortunately. So we might take 30 minutes to create a material after we've captured this 80 to 100 gigabytes of data, but we're not throwing away visual information. We're not throwing away the spectral information. Well, I'm going to have to take your word on that because I have no way, <laughs> no way of checking that. Luckily, we uh, have a number of PhDs in our bond development office who could explain it chapter and verse if you had three hours. <laughs> Nah. 
<laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'm um, one of them, I'll tell you. Let me let me ask: Is do, do you think that this sounds like a technology that at some point years down the road will be less expensive, more available to you know the regular uh, businesses, not? Um, you know, not quite as expensive as it is now. Do you see that? Do you see that this technology could uh, eventually filter down um, to to uh, a regular user, whatever that is? Um, I, I certainly do. It, it it has to. I mean, today the way the situation is set up with the Tax Seven scanner, it's only for let's say a limited number of companies, ones that have either thousands of materials or very, very deep pockets. I mean, it just, it's not for every company. Yeah. However, the use of these digital materials is widespread. So for our AXF file format to become an industry standard like a PDF would be, it needs to become a lot more widely available. It means it has to be less expensive, it has to be more widely available, and it has to be faster. All those things will come to pass. This particular system we're working with right now was really built for the needs of the automotive industry. We've taken it into other industries with a certain degree of success, but your point's exactly correct. If it's going to be a success and more widespread, it's got to be easier, it's got to be faster, it's got to be cheaper. And all those things will happen. I can't speak about it today, but all those things are going to happen. Okay. Okay. What do you, what do you, what, you're still involved in color management. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's where yeah. you came from. What do you, what do you see, and this is primarily an apparel audience, not exclusively, but probably primarily. What do you see as the current state of, of the uh, color management world in, in apparel these days? Uh, well, I see it from two different vantage points. In terms of the QA that's being done at the point of manufacture of a product, they've got a pretty good handle on how to do that. And once they have the specification of what's required, uh, factories around the globe are able to give the brand a a pretty accurate and pretty consistent production of products within a certain tolerance. So that part, I won't say is completely under control, but it seems to be very well-defined and pretty well understood. However, when we start at the design end of things, from initial specification of what the ultimate product should be, that still has a lot of... There's a lot of loose, loose area there. Um, just even talking to designers who are very, very talented about their design skills. But then when you ask them, well, what exactly you're looking for as a final color result, they might give me a specification that's designed for ink on paper. You and I both know that there's a big discrepancy between something that's designed to be printed with a translucent ink versus something that's designed to be reproduced with an opaque dyed material whether it's a polyester or a cotton or rayon, the making of the material, that can be fairly automated, can be fairly predictable, but translating the design into a product, that part is where the digital digital design tools aren't really well used yet. Um, When I go to things like PI Apparel, uh, when we still had PI Apparels, um, we would see companies who were saying, I really want to get into this. And they'd be saying it, year after year, whereas their factories have adopted technical tools and have been using them for some time. 
not trying to be mean to designers out there. You're wonderfully creative. No. In terms of trying to give specifications through to your manufacturing partners, that's where there's a lot of disconnect. And that's where I think digital tools could be a big help. And because we're, we're dealing so, with color control and appearance control when we're talking about materials. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's all right. Um, so this is a question I've asked everybody who's come on. Um, and I'm going to ask you is there, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of companies that, um, you know, small, medium sized companies that, um, are not doing anything digital. Um, they have their own way of doing things. Um, they might, they might be starting to see that there's some advantages to using some digital tools, but how would you tell a, a, a small or medium sized company to start? They're not going to buy everything all in at once. Um, what's the way to, what would be the, the entry point? Well, that's a great question. And I, I think one, one method, and there's certainly are more than, more than one way to, to go at this. One method is to go to the, the many educational facilities right now that are offering courses in this, not to take courses, but to say, okay, do you have students who are looking for interning jobs in the industry to get their chops so I can, I can learn from them and they can learn from me. Uh, we have partnerships with a couple of different, uh, different educational facilities. In the footwear world, we've got a partnership with Pensol out in uh, Portland, Oregon. And we've got a wonderful partnership with the University of Cincinnati. These are educational facilities that are using our systems. And the students who are learning how to use the digital tools don't have the industry cred that they need and they don't have the background in the industry, but the industry needs what they can do and needs the information that they've learned. I'd start there. Now you can all, you can try and learn this all yourself, but that's going to be a long, long slog and you've got your business to run. I would start first by reaching out to the people who have the knowledge you're looking for. They're just looking for a place to be able to put it to use. So uh, reach out to your local schools and you've got, I mean, in certainly in the, in the East coast in New York, you've got an abundance of riches there between you know FIT and the various schools that you've got that are able to bring talented, well-educated, digitally fluent students to a business that may or may not have this skill set already. So you're saying the equipment will come later. Let's just get some guy who understands what he's doing here, a guy or girl. Yeah, the last thing you want to do, and I, I should never say this as a salesperson of equipment, but the last thing you want to do is bring in <laughs> I was going to buy one later. Yeah, bring in the equipment and then learn about it on the fly. No, you want to have people on hand who know how to know how to work with it, and that's why we've cooperated and partnered with educational facilities because we recognize if nobody knows how to use the system, companies can't buy it. So I would start first with the people who know how to use the system and know how to do digital product creation from the technical standpoint before you invest in hardware. Hopefully so what my, would you my sales manager's not watching? <laughs> <laughs> so what would you what would you like to see companies, even larger companies that you deal with now, what would you like to see them do more of or and or less of? Um, well, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see companies approach things from a design sell make standpoint rather than a design make hope to sell, particularly in fashion, where so many things get manufactured in hopes of being sold. That's because it's 
easier right now to make something and bring it to market and hope it sells than it is to design something, have a way to show it to customers online and get them to agree to buy it. But we are seeing the world of, of custom clothing. We're seeing the world of custom footwear starting to rise up. And if you can get paid for something before you make it, that's a pretty solid business opportunity. And that's something that digital design and digital materials can actually allow you to, to explore. Now, there's always going to be the mass market where you're going to make things and you, you have an idea what's going to sell. But there's an awful lot of smaller players right now who can't afford the luxury of you know making things that aren't going to sell or making things that can't go into a store because stores can't be open. Being able to go online and sell directly, that's a, that's a, a marketplace that I think is really poised to grow quite quickly. That's interesting, and it makes sense. What do you think the, um, the color standards providers um, could do better? So, you know, if that's... A, if that's um, a bit of a loaded question. Um, there's many... I don't mean it to be. Yeah, okay. But there's, there's many color standard providers, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in the Pantone system. Um, and they all have their own set of tools, um, physical and digital tools. Uh, but the business case of what happens when you use them, or rather what happens if you don't use them effectively, I don't think that's something that has been done effectively based on, on people I talk to in the market. Because we can explain, okay, you are using either the Pantone system or using RAW. Uh, people understand that system but there isn't necessarily the business case to say, okay, this is why we use this, and this is the this is the fiscal benefit in using the system. So, in terms of as a standard provider, that's I think an area where we certainly have, have room to grow, and I'm sure our competitors in the field have room to grow as well. The physical tools are good. Little, yep. You're talking about some good, hard, fat ROI. Yeah, very much some numbers on it. I mean, when we're dealing with sense. when we're dealing with someone who has to sign off on a six-figure investment in a color control system, they don't want to necessarily know, or they don't have the time to to learn about the technical intricacies of it and why this is the best system in the marketplace. But what they do want to know is, okay, if I invest X number of dollars here. What's my return going to be and what's the time frame going to be for it? And, you know, that sort, of, that, that sort of information in other industries is widely available. In the world of color control and color standards, I think we treat it more as a creative, a creative decision and less of, a, less of a financial one. I think it needs to be uh, much more of a financial. Here's the economic reasons why this is a necessity to do. Right. I mean, mistakes are, are very expensive and nobody wants to build something or make something that you're going to lose money on. Of course. You know, I had one more tack question that I forgot to ask you earlier, and I, I think it might have fallen off our list. So if, um, if you don't want to answer this question, that's fine. Um, but has there been any consideration for tack for hand and maybe and or drapeability? Or those things that are outside of the purview of the tech. Well, they're questions that um, everyone who's involved with 
making making clothing is concerned with. So we get we get that question a lot. But the answer I'm going to give you is that it's really it's outside of our area of skill. We're all about color and appearance. What we're not all about is measuring the stretch of a material, the drape of the material. And right now, there's no industry standards. For example, if I have two customers who want to use my digital materials for rendering purposes, those digital materials can incorporate all the measurement information from either a system that's used by Clo software or by browseware. But the method that each one of those programs has for measuring the drape of the material is different. And then when I go to our friends at um, North Carolina State College of Textiles and ask them for their standards on how to express these physical properties, there's yet another set of standards or another methodology for doing the measurement. There isn't an industry standard on this yet. So A, it's not our, it's not our area of expertise, so we don't go there. But we'd be very, very happy when the industry coalesces around one way to measure and express drape of material. Once that's, happened, once that's occurred, then we certainly can record that information and incorporate it into our file. It's, we've got the metadata editing tools to be able to incorporate that information. We're just not the measurement people to do that. Yeah, no, I get it. I remember probably 10 years ago, I saw somebody's equipment. I don't know if it was Mettler or one of those you know, companies that makes uh, testing equipment, um, was trying to standardize hand and um, I don't, it's still not a stand, you know, it's still not a standard for it in the market. And, and even if there was a standard for it, if I'm a remote designer, if I don't physically have the sample, I don't have some sort of syn- synthetic way to know what that material is going to feel like. There's, there's no, right. Okay. It's a five. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm looking for, I guess people are looking for haptic feedback on materials from digital design programs and not to say that we can't get there, but we need to have some common language on how to express that, assuming that someone develops a device to help me feel what silk is going to feel like. Right. Or, 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 I think there's, I, I know there's work being done in that way. So. Yeah, definitely is being researched, but that's, again, we're, we're trying to be experts in a, I won't say a narrow field, but a, a focused field. And the focused field is color and appearance. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So this, uh, crappy pandemic is hitting everybody do you think that um do you think there'll be the same kind of focus on color after it um do you see maybe um a little less interest in it or do you think it'll still be a a driver uh that it has been for the last 10 20 years um i think it'll be even more of a driver um one thing that uh, if my personal experience is any anything to go by um, we're buying more things online than previously. And if you're buying something online, particularly clothing or footwear or anything that's you know personalized in that regard, the two main reasons why you wouldn't keep the product would be fit and color or fit or appearance of the, of the product. And those two things are going to drive the return rate of a product, which is uh, death to profitability. So I don't see companies taking their eye off this, even if we go back to a world where we can freely walk about and freely go into stores and see physical product. Just the convenience factor of being able to see something online, be confident 
then I'm going to get what I'm expecting when it arrives in two days or one day. That's, that's, that's a, people like convenience. That's just so convenient, but I don't see that stopping. I think that's going to yeah. be um, I think even, even hopefully when I we think get the day when things go back to what we thought was normal. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Um, I think that it's going to have to start from the, um, the, the retailer and the brand to capture those metrics mm-hmm. on what comes back and why exactly why um, for, to really itemize the, the returns and put a number on it, you know, to drive that. I don't think they really do that now. Well, and again, I, I, I hesitate to say there have been good aspects to what we're dealing with right now, but one thing that I am seeing is that new ideas are being encouraged more today just because the word pivot isn't a nasty word. I mean, if you had a business that was going very well for you prior to 2020 and suddenly that business has been radically changed, it's not a strange thing that, okay, we need to look at this differently. What can we do differently? What can we do that we weren't even considering before because we didn't need to? That's the type of crisis that that drives adoption of a new way of doing things. And hopefully, digital product design will be a beneficiary of that more open thinking. If you're faced with a business that is radically changed, changing radically doesn't seem so unusual. (laughs) That's right. Yep, good point. Um, do you see any things that are that are being forced on companies now that that might become best practices later? Um, besides the the digitization that you're talking about, um, well, certainly it, it is focused with laser-like attention on profitability and what what were we doing that made money for us and what were we doing that wasn't making money for us. Um, in our company and, and I'm sure almost every company out there. So that type of focus is a good thing. I think that will continue on. Um, these are lessons that are being learned today that won't be easily forgotten. We're not going to go back in 2021 and forget everything that we learned the hard way in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's really, those are the questions I had for you, Bruce. And thank you very much for your time and, and your generosity and your uh, uh, particular attention to uh, see those questions. I really appreciate it. Um, do you have any, do you have anything you'd like to say or? Well, thank you. For, you for, everybody, <laughs> for everybody who who's taken the time to, to watch this, I really appreciate your time. Um, there are no there are no silly questions to ask. So for people who want to know more about this, um, don't be afraid to, to reach out to you know, Columniani uh, or X Right Pantone, and, and we're happy to try and give you information without trying to say you must buy something. I understand that the tax system is not going to be used by every company, but there's no good reason why digital product design couldn't be a lot more widespread than it is today. And we're happy to try and help with the information any way we can. Yeah, I'm just looking on on uh, Facebook to see if there was any questions. Yeah. I don't, I don't see any. Um, but I missed them last time too. So, um, 
<laughs> but if there are, I will, uh, I'll send them to you to answer. Okay. And um, so thanks everybody. Appreciate your time. Uh, we have another uh, interview next week at this time, three o'clock on Tuesday with uh, Nick Bazarian, who is the uh, senior product manager uh, at Pantone. And he's worked on a new uh, digital web course, e-digital, uh, web application uh, for Pantone. And that's just come out in the last few weeks. And it's going to be very important, I think, to all designers. Um, it'll be uh, uh, a piece that they can carry around um, on their phones, um, on their iPads, on their computers, and they all talk to each other. Um, so a great way to build palettes and um, uh, just keep colors and to maybe cross-reference colors between systems and uh, get an RGB of, you know, number of, of a Pantone color. So I think it's going to be important. Uh, and I think it'll help designers a lot. Uh, integrates fully with Adobe applications. So it's the real deal. And we'll have Nick here, who's the expert, will help build it. Um, and we'll have him on to, um, to show us and to talk to us about it. All righty. And uh, okay, that's it. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate Thank it. Bye-bye.